Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. My guest this week is Andrew Simmons. Andrew is a running coach based in Colorado and he spends a lot of his time helping athletes prepare for ultra running events. Now this is something that I know a lot of triathletes consider once they've done their Ironman thing. So if you're interested in running an ultra event, please listen hard as we chat about how you can prepare for events from 50k upwards. Let's get cracking and hear what Andrew's got to say. Welcome to the show, Andrew Simmons from Lifelong Endurance. Simon, thanks for having me, man. I'm really excited to uh, to be here with you today. It's a pleasure, Andrew. It feels like a long time ago since we met, but actually it's not that long, is it? I think 2017 in Boulder at the Training Peaks Conference might have been the first time. I think that was the I think that was the first time. Yeah, I was just giving a roundtable there uh, on run data analysis. I actually came back the next year to do to do much the same thing, uh, but this time. Um, that's actually, I think, where we actually had a chance to sit down and have a have a longer conversation. Did you come to the one in Manchester? No, I was unable to to get there. I had a conflict. Um, my youth kids, um, you know, pretty much mid September through December is our cross country season here. So those that's my priority, or at least was my priority then, um, and still is now. Okay. Well, you are based in Colorado, um, not far from Boulder. You're just mm-hmm. down the road, but still. Um, there's an awful big concentration of endurance coaches in that part of the world. And I'm always in awe of you guys that keep your businesses running because I I wonder how you are able to persuade so many people to join you when they have so much choice. Yeah, you know, it's we thought the same thing. So when we started our business in 2014, uh, both my wife and I had only lived in Colorado for six, maybe seven months at the time. And we thought we'd be like one of a, one of a million. Um, and on, on paper, we look like one in a million, but I think what it, what it always comes back to, at least what I found in, in building a business is it's about, it's about creating a culture and it's also about creating a, a connection with people. And so there are people that have contacted me over the years that just aren't about what I'm about. Um, you mm. know, and, and they're not going to subscribe to what I do. They're not going to, you know, subscribe to how I do it. And so, you know, I I thought at first I was like, man, every every fish in the sea has got to be for me. And now there's there's a handful of fish. There's a handful of fish that really subscribe to what I do, how I do it, and, and align to kind of how how I speak, if that makes sense. So it's yeah, it's it's actually not it's actually not that bad. You know, there's 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 going to be a, an arc there, right? Um, Mm-hmm. They're going to be people that are new, brand new coaches and brand new athletes are going to want to subscribe to that. And then there are going to be people that have been in this industry for a long time and they're going to attract their own level of athletes. So I, we, have, we haven't really had an issue with it, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, are most of your um, the athletes that you work with from the local area or are they spread all over the United States or, and beyond? Yeah, worldwide. So I coach athletes all, you know, all over the world. Um, have an have an odd concentration of people in Switzerland. Um, for <laughs> what for whatever reason. Yeah, the Swiss seem to love me. Um, but yeah, you know, across the US, a number of athletes in in Texas and pretty well populated areas, Atlanta, New York, things like that. Um, but we we actually have a, a really good group that's actually forming in Colorado, which has actually been interesting as as our business grew. Uh, kind of alongside, you know, working with training peaks and and working with, you know, um, you know, in the writing that I do, um, it's it's we actually grew more internationally first than we did locally, mm-hmm. um, and kind of got traction outside of Colorado. And so I've spent the last two years, despite a pandemic, trying to kind of grow a, a greater local community. It was actually harder for us to grow in a in a local sense than it was. Um, inner, you know, internationally. And I think one of the things there is that that's a problem, you know, I think only true to Colorado. You know, I grew up in Michigan originally. And when I trained for my first marathon there, we had a marathon training group that probably had 80 to hundred athletes that would go out on a long run together. Like it was a huge group for the Midwest, which I thought was like, I was like, wow, this is something that's really special. But then 
when I moved to Colorado, I'm like, okay, where are the 10 groups that are just like this one that I have to imagine are just crawling around Boulder. Mm. And the reality is, is that's, that doesn't happen. It's becomes these very small, everyone's an individual here, right? Everybody has their own training plan, has their own thing because they are this athlete and they can't loosen those screws 10% to go get a good workout with a bunch of other people. And that has been one of the hardest things to try and overcome is I don't have to just get the appeal of one person anymore to create a training group that then spreads. I have to try and create something that appeals to a lot of people. So that's tough. Interestingly, I had a, um, another podcast guest on this week. Uh, you might be interested in her book. She's called Joseph, Dr. Josie Perry. She's a motivational psychologist. Her book, which is it's, it's available for free, actually, on Audible. So I'm helping to spread the word for her. But it's called The Ten Pillars of Success. And she interviewed quite a number of elite athletes and read <laughs> more papers than she could uh, She's probably had hot dinners. <laughs> and one of the pillars of success that she identified was this sense of belonging, which is interesting based on what you've just said about um, in Boulder, nobody seems to want to belong. They want to belong to a group of one because if they've got this program to do or this session to do, which has got to be done at this heart rate and this FTP and this running power, et cetera, et cetera. They don't want to be, they don't want that to be compromised by having to run with somebody else who might be trying to achieve another goal. And yet the power of running in groups, as we've seen from the East Africans is huge, isn't it? And there's, there's a, there's a place for doing your own sessions. And 80% of the time, if we follow the polarized training model, perhaps you'd just be running easy chatting to four or five other people that are running easy. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's been the interesting thing, right? Like is it that people want to get together to go run easy or is it that people want to get together and do workouts? And we've tried to get to say, Hey, maybe people want to get together and do workouts. No one shows up, but you know, you, you usually I, I have to bribe people with, you know, some sort of, uh, some sort of beverage or, <laughs> or food to, to get, to get that to come out, mm-hmm. uh, to get the easy run model. And that's not to say that there aren't a hundred training groups in and around Boulder, but that's usually right. We talk about Dathan Ritz and Hines, uh, OAC group, Boulder underground. There's a number of under other groups that are out there that have a, that do do group training there. That's not to say that, but when we talk about the general public, Mm. there isn't kind of that community group, um, that I was used to seeing and being able to find here. There's just no one that shows up regularly on the track to go do the thing. And that's also comes down to track access, which I think you guys dealt with during the pandemic, your tracks were closed mm. if I remember correctly. So that, mm. that made it tough. Mm. So when you started then, um, cause my first impression of you when we met in Boulder was that you were mostly focused with runners. Although I, I do know from your website that you, you were also engaged with triathletes. Is, is that where you came from? And is that what you plan to be involved with? Yeah. You know, I, I do now only coach runners. Um, our business, you know, serves triathletes as well. Uh, my wife and another coach that we have on staff, Laura, um, they, they coach our, our triathlon, uh, our triathletes, I should say. Um, but I actually originally did start in triathlon. Um, that was kind of my gateway to lose almost 85 pounds. You know, that was kind of my, that's how I dip my toes in the water, right. Uh, literally getting comfortable with, um, you know, just, just moving my body again. You know, I, I wrestled all through high school and then in college, you know, I, I kind of dropped doing anything and focused on getting an engineering degree. And then, you know, that's when I was like, Oh, maybe I can ride a bike. I used to swim quite a bit and it kind of just snowballed there. I did an Ironman in 2011. And, uh, until this year, I really didn't get on a bike again. I got on a, you know, a little bit, but running is what I've done for the last decade. Um, and almost almost 40 marathons now, uh, deep into the hole. So I'm interested, particularly, I know you coach and work with ultra runners. That's gaining popularity in the UK. Um, so I'd, I'd really like to dive in and chat with you about how do you coach somebody for ultra running? When they're running for 50 or 100K, surely it's about just getting them out to do as much volume as possible that they, that they have within that time. But, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. And so that's what I'd like you to, to sort of help me to understand and, and our listeners, if possible. Yeah, where do you, where do you want to start, Simon? There's, there's, uh, we, can, we can go down a lot, of, a lot of alleyways. Okay, well, let's, let's 
try and fill the shoes of somebody who might be listening to this podcast. Yeah. They do triathlons. Mm-hmm. They've maybe done some Ironman races. They're looking for something different to excite them. So they decide, and, and also to see if they can stretch themselves a little bit further. If Ironman doesn't stretch them enough and sort of help them to find their limits, they decide that perhaps a 100K ultra trail race and maybe they've got maybe they've got this idea that they can can, uh, can qualify for ultra trail mont blanc and they obviously need to accumulate the points um to, to get into the ballot there so they they find a 100k ultra to do they've not really done a great deal of running you know because in iron man if you run three times uh, three hours a week and you're consistent you can still knock out a sort of fairly steady marathon after a long bike so um and and they've got a limited amount of hours. Let's say they've got ten or twelve hours. So there's gonna mm-hmm. there's gonna have to be some compromises made. There. There's gonna be have to be some sacrifices on swimming and biking. So where do you start um, as a coach when somebody like that approaches you? You know that's a really that's a that's a phenomenal question that I'll I'll try to be pointed in my answer with. I think you know to get started is I think we we have to first kind of draw the lines of like where where is that athlete at? And I think you did a great job. If we're looking at ten to twelve hours a week. Um, it's really kind of first understanding is the, is the athlete's goal just to finish? Um, or are we, do we have a time goal invested in here? And if it's, if the goal is first a, just to finish, and we'll move to time goals beyond that. I think it's really then building up alongside, you know, what are the demands of the event? If it's a, if it's a significant climbing event, um, you know, in the mountains and things like that, or if it's a, a flatter hundred K, um, that's, that's going to be kind of, where we have to draw things up, where are their strengths and weaknesses to kind of start? Um, if it's strictly a volume thing, then yeah, a, a good portion of what they're doing needs to be, you know, focused on getting in, you know, more time on feet. That's a, that's a word you'll hear a lot when people describe training for an ultra is time on feet. Like if we, if you're going to be out there for 13 to 15 hours, um, say, you know, you want to have a run in there, that's going to give you something that's, that's close. Right. And this is where we have a big divergent spectrum between when you go out and train for a marathon by majority, you'd want to run 75% of the distance. You start to move beyond the 50 K and that doesn't really become attainable, uh, in a single run at least. And so the biggest difference between, you know, a, a person training for a marathon or even a 50 K is we're now looking at they're training, especially from a distance perspective in what are we doing in a 48 hour period? What are we doing in that weekend, right? What's that Saturday and that Sunday look like? And that's really where we start to expand in terms of, uh, cumulative fatigue that becomes the greatest kind of determination of success when it comes to how well is an athlete going to perform at hundred K hundred mile is how well can they manage cumulative fatigue? And this is where I also see athletes kind of get sideways with things is that, um, it's an iterative process. The first Ironman you train people for Simon, I'm sure was not their best. And it's about getting a number of Ironmans underneath their belt. And so this is also where I have to kind of know the athlete I'm working with. If I'm working with someone that this is a bucket list event, I'm going to train them differently than someone that says I want to move into the ultra running space because that's training two different mindsets. Um, but we're going to be able to take a lot of clues from the Ironman world, right? They probably know how to hydrate themselves, hopefully pretty well. They probably understand, you know, nutrition for a, you know, 12 plus hour event. Um, so when we talk 13 to 15 hours, what really changes there, as I said, is, um, just making sure we find that balance of, you know, at least four to five times a week, we're going to need to get out and run. And ideally on the weekends, it's going to be back to back. That's that is as bare bones of a structure as I can get. So you're saying they need to get out there and run, <laughs> um, but do they need to run? I mean, can can that can a lot of that be a mixture of running and walking? Particularly if you're going over the trails and you're on some rugged ground, um, and you go out on a Saturday and you, you're going to go out all day. You know, you could probably mm. run on the flats and the downhills, walk the uphills. You know, you're going to get a, quite a bit of fatigue built up if you're out there for eight hours, aren't you? And then you've got to get up and do that the next day, or maybe you've got to get up and do it in the middle of the night. So you get used to, because there's, if you're going through the night as well, that's another element. There's a psychological element and there's a, there's a physical, physiological element to that as well, in terms of what way your circadian rhythms are. So that, that, that would also be part of the demands of the event and the specificity. 
Yeah. You know, I, I think you, you hit it right. Like, I mean, that's where using a tool like training peaks, I think is, is helpful, right? Because we're actually able to look at the metrics of what, how much fatigue are you actually producing? And how do we build that up, right? We, we can talk periodization and all that jazz, but what it really comes back to is making sure that we do want to see that they're able to build that up. And so to, to touch on one thing you said there early on is, um, you know, when it, when it comes to walking, a lot of people see that as a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, we've, we've got to get that out of their heads. We've got to get that walking is this stigma of weakness because it's actually a strategy. This isn't, you know, um, you know, the run walk methodology in a marathon. This is the fact that you're out there for 13 to 15 hours. And if you're going over, um, you know, mountainous terrain, you should not try from the start to run up those hills. It's that that's going to come back and bite you at hour 13, uh, hour 15, uh, in a, in a longer race, like a hundred mile. The, one of the. Uh, ultra events that's very popular with athletes in the UK and I know I mean I've done this myself twice and there's a lot of triathletes that have their eye on this one if they haven't done it already is a marathon disable mm. so that's a multi-stage event I, I'll, I'll refrain from calling it a race because unless you're in the top sort of five percent it's not really a race it's just a challenge I have conversations with people who say right so I need to be running 100 miles a week do you know what the majority I'd say the majority of people spend most of the time walking that race particularly when you're carrying a 10 kilo pack um 22 pound pack uh, you know it's very difficult to run 20 miles every single day and sleep in a tent with you know on a on a piece of carpet on a rocky part of the desert and exist in that sort of heat and like you I'm saying to people you know you, if you can do an ironman you're fit enough to for, to do this already You've got the aerobic fitness. Most of your challenge is about dealing with dysentery, um, hygiene, blisters, boredom, and the mental side, just day after day recovery. But still, they insist on trying to build up to 100 miles a week and inevitably get injured because the body just can't cope that sort of increase in um, the time. Uh, do, you, do you see similar mistakes for people who are, uh, are sort of chosen to do I guess in in America, the big things, the, the big uh, iconic ones would be um, Western States and uh, Leadville. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, there's a certain amount of amateurism that comes with that too, right? I think, um, you know, if if I could list out the number of references to Born to Run that have come into my, <laughs> my email inbox um, and saying, this was my motivation for contacting you, I just, I'm going, okay, well, kind of. Like, unfortunately, I kind of have that person pegged on kind of what they want and their expectations tend to be falling outside side the norm. So, yeah, you know, um, I think when we think of it, an event like MDS, where it is, it's multi-day is the biggest battle is, is yes, the attrition that happens muscularly and physiologically, but it's also, you know, it, it'll crack the people that aren't, aren't solid between their ears. You know, that's, that's where the cracks start to form first. It's often not the physiological side. Um, but I, I like to live by a quote, um, that's, that's been used a lot and tossed around a lot is that I, I want my athletes to go into event. I'd rather have them go in. I should say, you know, a hundred percent rested and 80% fit than a hundred percent fit and 80% rested mm-hmm. because si- simply put, you know, you can always dig more when there's some room left in the well. But if you're going there and you're, you're on the verge of injury walking to the start line, and we're talking about a multi-day event, maybe a 200 mile event. Um, he, there's, there's nothing to draw on. You've got, you've got no well to dig. It's, it's dry. You've used it. Um, so yeah, I see a lot of athletes come in that think that they, they set a marker for themselves mentally about what they deem as a successful training regimen. And that can be really hard as a coach because that's the first battle I have is, uh, you know, I, I have to. I end up having to persuade them and not that that's that, that word can, can lose some, um, that can get a not negative connotation that I have to persuade an athlete, um, as to why my training program is going to benefit them. Right. But that usually comes from experience. It usually comes from as a coach, like I'm not going to sit on this podcast and pretend that I haven't made mistakes. I've made mistakes and that's, that's why I've been able to do what I, I do with athletes and help them achieve that. They may think they need a hundred miles a week when the reality is they're going to get probably the same result 
and less injuries on 50, 60, mm-hmm. and still have room for life. It's going to be a better experience from A to B to get to that start line. Just some out of interest, um, for something like a uh, hundred, do you do your trail races in uh, America get measured in kilometers or miles? Uh, by majority miles, like we usually have, like the only metric distances that are common here are fifty k and hundred k. Right. So, um, your average trail run would be a hundred miler, would it, or would it be a hundred k? I think the, yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on on what you call average. I think by majority, you know, in the U.S. across the probably the most popular ultra distance is fifty k, um, but the the ones that people really see as the big events, right? The kind of gold cup events, if you will, are going to be hundred mile events for sure. Okay. So what would be the average pace in that? Not, not, we're not talking about the elites. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Four, so for four, tw- four miles an hour, five miles an hour, probably closer to five miles an hour, right? So 20 minute miles. And so you, you think about a 20 minute mile, uh, right? I think 20 minute miles, I, I'd have to check my math on this. Gosh, that's got to be close to twenty. No, that's hour. not. That's not five five miles an hour. So twelve miles. 12 oh no, miles, no, sorry. I'm thinking twenty minute miles. So I got I got my conversions backed up there. I think a twenty four hour hundred is tw- is eight is either eighteen minute miles or twenty minute miles. I'd have to check my math on so that. Um, that that would be three miles an hour. Then just over three miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that's quite some. That's something quite difficult for most people to get their heads around then, because if I said. I'd like you to go out now for your run and I'd like you to do three miles per hour. That's brisk walking pace for most mm-hmm. people. Now, doing it for 24 hours is another thing, isn't it? But yeah. but actually, if you could walk briskly at four miles an hour for 24 hours, you're going to cover 96 miles. No, no, you're not. Yeah, you're gonna, yeah, 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 you are. You're going to yeah. cover 96 miles. So if you walk briskly, you could probably get through a 100-mile race in 24 hours, couldn't you? Yeah, and and I think that's... That's where, again, one of the big things that change that changes when we move outside of the normal, what we'd call road race spectrum from the mile to the marathon, it's, 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 it's a game of attrition, right? No longer are we trying to be able to build, uh, our aerobic threshold capacity, you know, any of that, those systems to just operate inside a very narrow three to four hour window, right. And, and, and for the average marathoner being what, four hours, they have to be able to, their energy systems need to just not fail for four hours. So now, now you shift and now it's about, okay, how do you go for 24 hours? And is that a pace that you, is that race pace actually something that you want to leverage regularly in workouts? Mm -hmm. I, right. Like you're not going to go out and, and do, you know, three by 5k at your 24 at at your hundred mile pace. That's just not, there's, you're you're barely going to break out of zone two. Mm -hmm. So again, race pace now changes, right? And so this whole paradigm is something that's being newly explored, I think. And it, right, it's not to say that ultras are brand new, but I think the training principles around them are, right? They're, they're, we're building new, new principles there. Okay, so on that basis then, if I'm going out for an hour's run, at what pace do I run? I mean, am I going to run at my aerobic threshold? Am I going to run? Is there, is there even any point in trying to run at that intensity? Or do I still build elements of my fitness that are useful in the race? Or do I need to rein it back in a bit and think, no, I'm going to go out running every day for an hour. And therefore, in order to maintain that consistency, I've got to run a bit easier. Yeah. You know, I kind of think of this, this might be a weird analogy, but, you know, if you have your regular home in the city and you have a weekend home, right out, out in the country, I kind of think of training in a way similar to that. Like when you're at your home in the city, we're going to kind of treat that as like, we still need to, to spend that time in those five days that we we've got our regular work schedule running an hour a day, you know, on average is pretty, pretty important there. And we're still going to want to leverage workouts, right? We're still going to be able to do speed work. Like that's still important, right? Like, if your average threshold in the starting of a block is, let's say you can't, your, your, your aerobic threshold is nine minutes a mile. And by the end of that block, we get you to an eight minute mile. You're going to show up to that race fitter because that base level fitness is a level higher, right? We mm-hmm. just know that. Mm-hmm. So there still then provides a means to want to do speed work and the desire to do speed work, right? That's leg economy. And economy still shows up at mile 80. It still needs to be important. But then- the country home. That's where we're able to go out. And that's where we do want to try to kind of feel out 
where is that hundred mile pace? That's when you talk about, right. Like you said, going out for that eight hour run, you, you are not, we're not going to go do that. You, you're going to be walking at times. You're going to, right. You got to train your gut. You got to train hydration. So I, I kind of look at it as the two houses of, of training. I was in another podcast. We have a, a couple of other coaches join me and we call the grumpy old coaches. And we have a bit of a rant about things. And we were talking about this over emphasis with FTP and VO2 max uh, as you know being really important when it comes to things like Ironman and, and long distance triathlon. And I guess it's the same for ultra running is that if you take the head of the field, those athletes tend to have the best figures and the best numbers, sure. right? When it, when it all comes down to it. But, but aiming to have the best numbers doesn't necessarily predict your race performance because on distances like this, actually your running economy and efficiency are the most important, aren't they? Because if you're not very economical in your movement, you're going to burn through your energy too quickly. Your muscles are going to tie up and actually you're going to come to a full, a full stop before you reach the finish line. Yeah. Right. And I think that also goes back to something that I, I, again, this, this may be a, a bit of, of, of a hot take, maybe not like, you know, I think a lot of it also goes back to body composition, you know, I think, um, you have to be not just an efficient runner, but metabolically you have to be efficient. And the longer you go, the, there, there kind of grows a different type of body shape, right? Like I, I would use, um, you know, someone, someone like, you know, Courtney DeWalter, for example, she's a phenomenal long distance ultra runner. She's done really well at like the Moab 240. I mean, the first year they had that event, she beat every single person. She was the first finisher. And if you compared body composition to that of an elite marathoner, there's just right. There's specific requirements that events demand, right. And it's being able to build your body to do specific things. So a good friend. Just, yeah. just for just for UK listeners who aren't familiar with Courtney DeWalt, I mean, we'll put a link to her anyway. But describe her physique um, to the oh. layperson compared to your average marathon runner. Yeah, wow this 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 could get me in trouble. Um, you okay. know, I is, think is uh, she is, does she have long, <laughs> frail limbs like a lot of marathon runners, or would you say yeah. she's a little bit more muscular, a little bit more chunky? Um, I yeah, you know, I think the the thing is right. Like, if you were if you were to say, right, she, she definitely had, she's not nearly as frail. She looks like someone that definitely spends her time. I mean, you have, you're, you're absorbing a whole lot more force running downhill for a hundred to 200 miles. Right. So muscularly she's, she's built completely differently. Like if you looked at the average, you know, marathoner, you know, they, they do, they have, they're, they're birds. They have very skin, skinny, thin arms, you know, fairly frail. Um, but you, you compare to, to an ultra runner, a mountain ultra runner, you know, there's a lot more muscle there and, you know, yes, they're going to be carrying around, you know, quote unquote more, um, that, than the average, you know, marathoner is going to, but the reason is, is like, it requires a lot more muscle to go up and down hills to be able so, to be durable, right? It's a durability. Right. So they have what, what I often describe it as a robust physique, um, in, yeah. in triathlon terms, if you were to look at somebody like Marinda Carfrey um, or yeah. Heather Jackson or, or even Daniela Reef, uh, you know, muscular, not, not frail. They, they look like they can yeah. handle the punishment for nine hours and they very, uh, yeah, and they very, and, and they very rarely get injured, which is probably, which, which means those two probably go hand in hand. Well, and yeah, right. We could also talk about gate, gate economy, right? Mm -hmm. Their, their stride isn't nearly as wide open as a marathoner is, right? So you know, or, but then again, ground contact time is going to be higher. So it's mm -hmm. like, you, you got to have a body that's willing to take up those ground reaction forces for 60, 70 hours. That's going to require, right? Like you're not going to put, you know, I mean, right. It's like, it's like the tires on your car. If you've got a rough trail to go down, <laughs> you, you're not going to take your sports car down, down a rough trail for, for 60 right. hours. You're, you're going to put some knobby tires on the thing. Well, we could, we could talk about the growing popularity of gravel biking, couldn't we? And the, t the, the difference <laughs> in the type of tires you put on your gravel bike compared to on your road bike. They're, they're 40 mil. They've got lots of little bumps and lumps on them. And I've got my, my road bike right here with 28 mil slicks on. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, what's going to be the comf more comfortable ride for, mm. for 100 miles on gravel? You tell yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I work in the forty mils. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. Well, what, so now we're talking about robustness. Then let's talk about the involvement of strength training here, um, and, yeah, let's do that. and the importance of that 
uh, and how strength the importance attached to strength training versus your standard marathon runner or maybe even a triathlete i find it very difficult to convince people despite proving to them on numerous occasions how beneficial it is i still find it very difficult to get them to find time in their schedule for strength training when they think that they'd actually be better served by doing more swim bike and run it's until they they experience their first injury isn't it Mm-hmm. You know, once, once an athlete gets injured or, or, or deals with a string of injuries, it strength training in a, in a sense is the way that I view it personally is that strength training for a marathon runner, an ultra runner, it's, it's your prehab. It's what's preventing it's, it's your insurance policy, if you will, um, against the future things that are going to happen. You have to build, like I've, I've said throughout this episode that, we have to build our bodies for the specific demands that we're going to put on it on that day, right? We're spending, you know, eight, 10, 12 plus weeks preparing our bodies for a peak moment, a single day. But we also have to make sure that we're, we're doing the maintenance. You're not going to drive your car for a whole year and not do an oil change and change the brakes and do all those things. And that maintenance comes back to range of motion and mobility with our bodies. If we start to lose range of motion in our hips, in our shoulders, that's going to show up as an injury and slow us down. So to me, if you're going to do maintenance to your car to keep it on the road or to your bike, however you want to use this analogy, it's the same thing. You're going into the weight room and doing strength and conditioning to keep yourself doing what you're doing. It's, it's an essential, if not imperative part of training. We've all been able to get away without it. And that's probably because we probably have efficient mechanics or other things that, that help us do that. But at some point, and I'm experiencing this after 10 years of, of not having really any injuries, the last two years, I spent more time in the weight room to keep myself together mm-hmm. than I ever have before. And it, it's a necessity, especially as we move out of our twenties into our thirties and beyond. You wait until you get into your fifties, you'll be spending more time on your mobility and strength than you will running. But I think that also goes back to our athletic history, doesn't it? Right. Like yeah. when you think about the the miles that you've put in as a, as, as an athlete, you, you can draw on that a whole lot more than someone in their twenties who hasn't put in as the thousands and thousands of miles. There's a certain amount of trust that you, right. We all have in our minds, the minimum that we're capable of, mm-hmm. right. The minimum, like I know that if I wanted to, I can go and run under three hours and 30 minutes in the marathon relatively comfortably. And that's not, you know, I'm trying to puff my chest up on a podcast. I just know that that's probably my minimum level of, of viable fitness. So then if I want to run under three hours to get that gap requires only a certain amount of training. I don't have to go run hundred miles a week to do that. So it, now it depends on how do I want to, what kind of body do I want to create? Right. And a lot of that happens in the weight room. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned mobility there because, um, I, I you know, was late to the party on this one although i've been engaged in strength training for a lot of my life i was late to the party in understanding the part that mobility played and that, that strengthening muscles that didn't have a full range of motion was probably futile anyway so you work on the mobility first and get full range and then you get strength within that full range but i think um when you're talking about robustness and being able to show it regularly katie ledecky's swim coach said or Katie Ledecky's coach, and Katie Ledecky's a swimmer for those who, who don't know. I said, look, we have a strength and conditioning coach. His job is just to make sure that she turns up for training. I don't want, I, I, I've given that person specific instructions that it's not his job to get her to bench press 200 pounds or to squat her body weight. It's to, it's to get her to a position where her body can handle the training and she can turn up as often as we want her to because yeah. it's in the pool where the gains are made, not in the weight room. The weight room just helps her to be consistent, which is which is what you've said here. It enables you to turn up when you're supposed to turn up. A hundred percent. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, is that you don't really understand the value of that until you're injured, until you're on the sidelines, because PT and physical therapy look a whole lot like a lot of the weight work that I give athletes. Um, a lot of it is rooted in, in foundations. And mm-hmm. I a lot of kids, right? Young athletes, we're not taught how to run, right? Maybe later on, right? You, you were probably had swim lessons to learn how to swim, but there's no one that, that you don't go get run lessons. You don't get bike lessons, right? You, you learn through your mistakes. Um, and you know, that's where one of the things that I've been really passionate about both with my wife and I is 
getting younger athletes into the weight room and teaching Mm -hmm. them what full range of motion is because most people, when they get into the weight room, maybe when they're late high school, early, you know, university years, um, they just pick it up and they, they just, they go off what they've seen, whether it's on a YouTube video now, but even before that, it was just like, I think that this is a curl, you know, and, and it may not be about getting full range of motion. It's like, yeah, cool. I picked up more weight. And if I do it a little bit less, I can do more weight. Right. And that's where things develop. And and you didn't realize that you set that neuromuscularly in your brain as a pattern Mm. and that, that puts you behind. Let's talk about run lessons then. I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff out there about running technique and, you know, what part of the foot you should land on. Um, there's various systems that have sprung up from this, you know, uh, again, with the grumpy old coaches, we were talking about pose running and Nick Romanov introducing that and then born to run again, talks to us about um, different ways of landing and different shoes that we should be wearing to improve our technique. And of course that's led to an awful lot of, <laughs> an awful lot of injury problems and lawsuits as well. Um, but then if you watch children run, if you watch four or five-year-olds playing on the beach or in the field and running Perfect. around after a ball, they do not, they run perfectly. They run free. They run fast. They have nice cadence. They land on the right part of the foot. They run barefooted. They don't get injured. And then it seems as we get older, we either get more um, more aware of this and, and start to worry about what people think about how we run, or we start to get stiffer as we get into adulthood and we spend all that time sitting down. And then, of course, our biomechanics get worse. Our range of motion gets worse. And that's when we start to um, adjust away from the natural running gate. And then, and then we think we need somebody to show us how to run properly when really we need to show us that we need somebody to remind us how to run properly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, wow, we could, uh, how long well, you want to talk on we, this? Well, we've got, we've got 20 <laughs> minutes. No, I, I think the reality is, is, is that, you know, over time, right. We've, we've built a society that that's kind of locked us into a desk, into a seating position. And that, mm-hmm. You know, we could talk about that shortening, you know, uh, shortening the hip flexors. There's air quotes there to the listeners. Um, You know, really, it kind of comes down to is that I I want kids to play as many sports as as they possibly can. Right. That's that's definitely. Amen. Love that. Because here's the thing is that to me there, it comes back to being what we call an athlete. An athlete is someone who can do a lot of different things, you know, pretty well. We call maybe maybe you, you would call that a Jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. I want someone that can catch a ball, throw a ball, kick a ball, climb a rope, you know, all of those things come back to being an athlete. And so we've kind of created this society in the last, I'd say 20 years in my, in my, in my childhood growing up of, of narrowing that path that if you want to be the greatest Mm -hmm. at something, Mm -hmm. this specificity, um, you know, then, then you must start at a young age. And I've actually had a lot of people say to me, well, Andrew, you start your, your youth club uh, for running at eight. You start that at eight, eight, eight years old, you, you get them out to run. And I'm like, Hey, how about you show up for a practice and see what, what it is we actually do here. And so, you know, to kind of take this in, in a similar direction is that we have to still create these things as play. I've always said to my, my youngest athletes and, and working with my youth coaches is that, we started this idea of deliberate play and kids need to, to play. They need to play and move. And that's when they move the most freely and it's still fun. It's when we start shifting them into saying, you must be in this position and it's this way. Well, you go watch a lot of the, the fastest marathon runners. And I would even say, if you watch the Olympics, you watch the, the triathlon there. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that running mechanics was, uh, you know, is always the, the most important thing. You know, there's going to be, it looks a lot of different ways. And so saying that there's one right way Mm. to do something, of course, right. That that's, eh, it doesn't fit. If you do get the chance to ever listeners, this is uh, to go and watch um, an elite marathon. Just, just watch as those front runners come past. You'll see four foot strikers, mid foot strikers, heel strikers. You'll see some people who seem to be overstriding and trying to run their way out of a, a sort of a confined space, but still these people are at the very front of the pack and they're running sub 230, which most of us would, uh, well, we'd sacrifice a lot to be able to run 230, I think. So as you say, there's, there's no right way, but, but 
more importantly, going back to what you said about children as athletes, I probably like you get several requests a year from parents who have a child who's 10, 11, 12, who seems to be showing some talent in the multi-sport arena and they want to have a, uh, employ a specific coach to train them to do triathlon at the age of 12. And I turn them down every time because often these kids are playing football at school, that's soccer in the UK, but playing football, they might be playing cricket in the summer, they play tennis, um, they might be good swimmers, they do cross country, um, they ride their bike and they do BMX. So they have got all of these sports. Maybe they do a bit of gymnastics as well. And like you, I want them to develop in those. I want them to keep doing those until they're 15 or 16 because if they've, if they've got talent as runners and swimmers and they carry on, they'll still be able to de- demonstrate that talent. And then they'll have a have developed a robust body that's able to move in all directions. And that seems to be one of the keys to long-term success is having that body that that's able to handle pressure from lots of different directions. You know, bu- building bone stress by stressing the bones from different angles Um having that upper body strength and mobility that gymnastic events can, can impart, you know, the, the, um, the proprioception and awareness of doing cartwheels and handstands and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you just focus on swimming, biking and running, they're all in one plane, sagittal plane. There's no, there's no lateral movement. There's no rotation. None. Um, it seems, it seems sad to me that parents in the search for athletic success oh, are willing yeah. to sacrifice uh, the, the the full the full development of their children. Yeah, you know, so it brings up two thoughts for me. Um, you know, as a kid, I spent six years wrestling. You mm-hmm. know, um, whether that was Greco Roman folk style, freestyle, and not only did it teach me practice and how to refine my movements and understand, right, like you said, proprioception, but I also had a coach that realized that even just wrestling wasn't going to get us where we wanted to go. We actually took ballet classes mm-hmm. because ballet taught us finesse. Ballet taught us how to, how to make our movements beautiful. And so when I think of an athlete, what makes a great athlete is that there's that finesse, there's that beauty in that movement, there's that freeness. And so we can say, oh my God, look at, look at how beautiful that person runs And yeah, it's beautiful. It's efficient, but it's like, I wonder what that athlete sport history is because there's a term that I use a saying, I should say with a lot of my parents and even some of my athletes is that at a young age, right? We get these kids that are just coming out of their, their elementary school ages in the the middle school here in the U S and I say, no one's handing out scholarships at the finish line. So let's, let's, let's just let this person develop because everybody gets stuck on the physical development and where I've started to focus a lot of my work is on character development, because that's, that's a whole nother thing that I feel is getting lost in the side of this mm-hmm. is that athletes as characters. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I lost, I lost my, 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 my last point there and I was, I was going to bring it all back and it was going to be wonderful, but I, I'll, I digress. You'll probably think about it in a few moments. So training is play and uh, we could, we could apply that to adults as well. I think, um, that a lot of the triathletes that I work with or are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe a bit older, seem to have lost that element of play. Everything's got mm. to be structured training. It's got to be focused on um, some some percentage of FTP or some percentage of VO2 max. Uh, I don't see anybody just going out for a ride on the mountain bike and practicing some, um, some skills on there. I don't see people trying cyclocross in the winter or... Um, maybe having a go at water polo to improve their pool skills. You know, there's a, there's an awful lot of open water skills that you would, uh, as well as swimming anxiety that would be put to rest. If you could play water polo for a few months, um, rock climbing, you know, climbing at the indoor gym, learning to ski, skateboarding, all of those things that build up athletic prowess that are playing really. Maybe we're too scared now and we sort of pushed ourselves into this little box and we don't want to get out of it because still we're worried about what other people will think of us when we, when we don't look particularly good. What's comfortable, right? Like, I think that's, that's where, you know, for me, my, my wife and I, um, she picked up Nordic skiing this last year Yeah, brilliant. and I was awful at it. Right. And, oh, it, I mean, it frustrated the hell out of me. I mean, it hissed, like it just, she, she just had the kick and the glide like that. And, you know, at six foot two, I mean, she would put, you know, distance on me in moments <laughs> and it frustrated me because 
when it came to aerobic sports, I know that I, I like on the bike, I know that I can keep up with my wife, who's, who's a solid cyclist on the run. I know that I'm a better runner than she is, but this was our equalizing sport. This is what equalized us as athletes. And I, I realized that a piece of it came back to my ego. A piece mm-hmm. of it came back to not want, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best in the room that day at that thing. And I had to put that aside. I had to put my personal thoughts about who I was as an athlete aside and be like, okay, I have to learn a new, I have to learn a new skill. And that does get harder as we get older, but we often will put those things aside. And like, I didn't really like that. And the reason you didn't like it is because you weren't instantly good at it. Like you are when you're a runner or a cyclist or a swimmer. But reality is, is that discomfort that you felt. I grew more as an athlete about how to relax and just focus on one thing at a time, one thing at a time and go back to learning that new movement. Like I did on the mat in wrestling, right? It it took me all the way back there and that's athletic development, right? I learned how to hang clean this year. That's what, that was my big quarantine project was learning how to hang clean in the weight room. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do that movement, but I had to start with almost no weight. Then then building it up and making sure that I had the form right and the and and the and, and making sure I didn't injure myself. That's what it goes back to. That's athletic development. When we're looking for percentages of FTP, we're developing a very small part of ourselves. And we think as mm. as humans, as people, right? High performance humans, if you will, our whole goal should be to be adaptable, to be able to do many, many things and to do them well. That to me is is the root of, of human development and, and high performance humans is that, you know, be able to show up and you don't have to be the absolute, you know, highest FTP in the room. You just need to be able to be adaptable on that day because you're going to be thrown a lot of different things. The person that prepared for one set of, you know, structures is probably going to fail because you're going to be thrown 10 different things that day. And someone that shows up that can rock climb that can swim, that can bike and can do a lot of things pretty well Hmm. in the long run, they're going to be the happier, healthier athlete. You've probably observed athletes that have been around in running for many years um, versus those who drop into the sport like a whirlwind and then they've they've gone and they're onto something else or they're injured. Now, when, you know, when I look at those people I know that have been in triathlon for 30 years or more, I see people who have fun. They like riding their bike and they'll mountain bike or they'll gravel bike and they're happy to do it just to go out with their mates for a few hours. They're not bothered about what the power meter says or the heart rate monitor. They just go and play. And some days they go off road and some days they, they ride one way and they get the train back the other, but it's just like, it's just like an expedition for them that they'll go out and do different types of running. They'll have longer breaks at the end of the season because they, you know, they, they know that they'll get their fitness back. They, they just seem to have a more relaxed, um, fun loving attitude to life and to exercise. But, but that then translates into longevity of athletic performance. And uh, as I get older, the desire to still be able to do this stuff when I'm in my sixties or seventies is greater than the desire to go faster. It's wisdom. You know, I, I think that that wisdom there, and I think it, in a way it goes back to our earlier discussion on training groups. You know, I think that when we're always chasing a very finite percentage of improvement, um, we lose why we got into the sport in the first place. We all got into this sport because it made us feel something. It made us feel good. It, it gave us something. It gave us a stress relief. Mm. And now we've taken something that re- relieved our stress and has now become a new layer of stress of performance that if I don't show up and do this today, then that says something about who I am as a person. Mm. Whoa, that is way far and away why you got into the sport. You got into the sport because it made you feel good and because it's fun. And you know what's still fun? Going out and you know riding your mountain bike and going over jumps and doing that and not worrying about how fast you ran that segment, right? That's, that's why, like, sometimes for me, I just get together and go out with my friends. I, I know I told you when we coordinated this, that I did a relay, we ended up pulling out of that relay because one of the guys took a fall and we were like, you know what? We got into this because we wanted to have fun. We don't need to win this thing. We could, but we don't need to. Hmm. We actually pulled out because we're like, you know what? We want to continue running and continue going back. And we want to show up Monday and be able to get, go, go out for another run. I don't want to be so you know, beat up and everything, you know, just because I want to do one relay, it doesn't matter that much, right? One race does not define you. I'm just thinking about a run that I did with a, um, a triathlon club 
one year. We started. At, we met at car park where there was a cafe. So the the aim was to come back and sit and have coffee together afterwards. So we're all going to finish in the same place. We need to run around the lake. So and I wanted them all to warm up. So I said, Look, we're just going to run at the pace of the slowest person. I don't want anybody disappearing off. We're going to we're going to run as a group. I don't want the person at the back feeling under pressure. They've got to keep up. You know, if you feel like it's too slow, run back to where we started and then catch us up if you want to add some bits in. But we all arrive at the bit. And then we're going to go into the woods. And what we're going to do is we're going to run from the bottom here to the top. It's about 200 meters. You can pick your own route up. You can follow the path. You can go through the trees if you want. You can go at your own pace. And then when you get to the top, I want you to go really hard. It's going to be about a minute or two's worth of work. I want you to go really hard, like, like when you were kids and it's the first one to the top. Yeah. But you're all going to get there at the same pace. And then I want you to meet up and I want you to all to jog back down the long way down here. And then we're going to do it two or three times. And if some, if you think somebody's cheating because they've taken the wrong route, well, they've maybe just taken the better route, but there is no route to the top. You've just got to get to this point. And they were laughing and they were shouting at each other and they were calling each other names and they were having arguments and banter, but they all enjoyed it. And everybody got the same workout, even though, you know, they were doing it at different paces. Everybody worked as hard. And then we all jogged back at a really easy pace, a cool down pace at the pace of the group. And they said, there was no some nobody said to me how far was that run up the hill Simon I'm like, I don't know but was it 200 yeah. meters no we didn't worry about that it was just get to the top of the hill well what what percentage of FT of, of VO2 max was running out well I don't know we did you feel like you could go any faster no well then you know that's you good there. enough yeah you've had, a good, you you've had a good workout but if you did that workout once a week for the next 20 weeks imagine how fit you'd be and you don't need to have a strict distance or a strict pace or a goal just go and have fun, do it as a group and come back and do it regularly. Well, you're, you're going to put us out of a job with, by saying that, Simon, right? Because, I mean, we, we got to start figuring out how to program fun. You know what I mean? Because, and, and I say that, you know, very tongue in cheek because I think that's, that's what's been lost is, you know, I, I can't program into Training Peaks an element of fun. I can't tell you to go out and just write in the comments, hey, go have fun today. Just, just let it be a free form thing. You know, I mean, sure, I can write those words, but people always come back to like if I program a fart lick and I, and I don't put it into the, the, the programmed mm. workout builder for somebody and I say, hey, you know, 25 seconds to 90 seconds, your yeah. choice, your recovery. My goodness, the number of questions and comments I get mm. because it's not this structured, delivered 90 seconds on, 60 seconds off at this pace and this pace. It's like their heads are going to explode. Yep. Let's let's just go back to going out and saying, "Hey, we're going to go and we're going to have time under tension for roughly 25 minutes. Yep. Go work hard for 20 to 25 minutes and next week we'll go over 22 to 27 minutes and slowly kind of build our ability to manage that that type of stress." If we could do that and 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 have that, right? There still needs to be some confines there because then everybody goes and does that every day. Mm. That's also not good. There's boundaries, right? But I think what you said was very wise in that there does need to be an element of fun. There is a need for structure, especially if you want to perform at a specific level. But if the whole goal of this is to have fun, the structure just needs to be under the guise of consistency. Show up regularly and do something regularly, whether it's strength train, you know, ride your bike, run, be an athlete, right? Be diverse in, in your athletic pursuits. But then also don't lose yourself in the process, right? Go out, have fun with it. What you do and what you pursue should put a smile on your face every single day that you do it. It's, it's not just your athletes that uh, complain about the idea of doing a random <laughs> or a natural fart. Like I, I similarly have a session in Training Peaks that says, choose a, a rolling course, run hard uphill. You know, it might be for 10 seconds. It might be for 40 seconds slow down to an easy jog or a walk just to get your breath back and then just jog downhill and jog along the flat and you know you'll know you're recovered and then when you come to the next hill run hard again until you get to the top yeah but how how often do i have to do that how many reps do i have to do i'm like i don't mind just go for 25 30 minutes and next week go for 35 minutes and but, but how much time do i have to spend going hard you know, you, you mentioned this and, and I'll, I'll share, I'll share one story right now. So an hour before I got on this, this episode with you, I sat and I talked to one of my high school girls and she's trying to break 20 minutes in the 5k. And, you know, the last three races, 
she shut herself down when she's looked at her watch and she, she saw that she wasn't on that pace. Okay. But that's a snapshot in time. How many times have you, have you looked at your watch, Simon, yeah. and it's told you a pace that you didn't like, and then you made a decision based on that. And I said, I, I told her in that call, um, and I'll change your name. You know, I said, Alyssa, like, you know, what we've lost here and where I've failed you as a coach is that, you know, we know what pace we need to run, but you can't feel it. You can't feel when you're recovered and you can't feel when, when you have something left in the tank, because you're always analyzing against the thing on your, on your wrist. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's come back to that now is I've told her for this race, I, w- I want you to, I want you to, you're not going to wear a watch. And I, I swear to you, Simon, it was like, I had told her that she wasn't going to wear shoes because it, it was like, how, well, then how am I going to know? Right. And I'm like, you'll know, like, just trust. This is not an important race. This is a race that, you know, for all intents and purposes, it has no bearing on anything. It's just another, it's another race and for her as, a, as an athlete, but it's going to teach her a whole lot in the process of how much do I actually have left? And that, that self-analysis, she's going to go and dig deeper and go harder without the tool because now those there's no boundaries. And this goes back to, right? Like we said, this goes back to my Nordic skiing. It's going to be uncomfortable, but she's going to learn a whole lot about what she's capable of. And she's not going to know whether she's ahead or behind the whole time. And that's okay. Malcolm Brown, I refer to Malcolm Brown a lot in my podcast because he's a, a very wise, experienced, just amazing coach. He worked with the Brownleys throughout their whole development from the age of 14 right up to those Olympic medals that they both got. And when I did the podcast with Malcolm and I was asking him how, how you know, you could be a faster runner, he said, well, first, you've got to relish the process. You've got to be able to run in the woods, not run to your watch, not wear any music, just enjoy the process of your feet crunching on the twigs and the leaves and the um, the undergrowth of listening to the birds, of do- dancing around the trees, of running on an even terrain and just feeling like you're flowing. And you need to be able to do that regularly. You don't need to be running at a pace or at a heart rate or um, or anything else. You know, there may be one session a week. And I mean, he used to, I think Alistair and Johnny used to do eight run sessions a week and two of them were against the clock and the rest of them were just running and running and chatting and running. But they did that consistently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, though, and that I've, I've heard that from many coaches. It's not just Malcolm. Um, I know we've got a few minutes left, Andrew, and we yeah. talked a little bit, you touched on nutrition and, um, there's been a move over the last few years. And I think some of it's been driven from the ultra world where, um, somebody like Scott Jurek, for instance, talked about being a, you know, he's moved towards being a vegan and how that coincided with his best performances. And then we've got the fat adapted endurance athletes who are almost keto. And um, the, the, the scientists are saying, well, that's fine because they're doing this really low intensity event that doesn't have much, have many spikes. And so you can get away with it. And so then other athletes are encouraged. What, what particular guidance um, do you share with your athletes about their nutrition or, or yeah. you know, do you, do you have any personal philosophies that are close to your heart or are you quite agnostic? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, you know, as, as an athlete, right. I'm going on, uh, 15 years as a vegetarian. Okay. So I've had a plant di- plant-based diet personally for 15 years. Now that, that is rooted a lot in my, my initial weight loss, losing 85 pounds, right? That's, that is part of what changed. I added in exercise and changed my diet. Um, but it's also part of that has provided a structure for me, right? It's given me guidelines to follow in my, in my training, in my, you know, in my diet. And so, you know, I'll, I'll make this, this relatively broad statement right now in that I'm not a nutritionist. I do not give, um, you know, any, any of that to my athletes by majority, what we, what I look at is that when I'm giving nutrition advice to my athletes is can your diet, you know, is, is what is in your diet and what you're eating, allowing you to sustain the amount of work that needs to be done plain and simple, right? This goes back to some very basic structures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause food is not only our fuel, it's also the first place of recovery, um, for a lot of people that if we're under fueling, after a hard session or big session, 
it's, we're not going to get the results that we want. Right. So yes, nutrition is extremely important, but is there one, one right way? No, I have athletes that follow the ketogenic diet, no matter what I think about it. There are athletes that I have, um, you know, a, a vegan, a very devout vegan diet, like don't eat honey and things like that. Uh Um, you know, and so that's, that's a huge amount of contrast. And all that I ask of my athletes is that if we start to see a decline in performance and we know that sleep is right, and we know that the training load is right, then it goes back to diet. And that sometimes those structures that we give ourselves do not allow us, um, you know, to always perform at our best. I've, I've had to make adjustments in my diet. Like I used, I initially followed a, a, a pretty strict vegan diet, but after talking to the doctor doing blood work, I found that I, I had to add in eggs and I needed a little bit more dairy. After I broke my foot, I had to get, you know, I, I needed a higher level of vitamin D and I get that through milk, you know? So those are things that mm. I had to make as an adjustment. The nutrition was necessary to, to do that. So to say that there's one right, one right way is I think, um, it's all about what works for you. And I know that that was a, a, a pretty vanilla statement, but I hope it made, made sense. Well, actually, it comes back to something I've heard from you know, people who are nutrition experts. Dr. Tommy Wood, one, um, I spoke to Brad Cairns about this as well. And their guidance is always, well, you have to find what works for you. It, it doesn't matter whether the science says that this particular approach doesn't work, because if it's working for you, how can I argue with that? Those are Tommy Wood's words. Tommy Wood that. also said, all I would say is try and eat as much food as possible. Rather than trying to eat as little as possible, try and eat as much food as possible before you gain weight and then yeah. adjust downwards a little bit. But what we shouldn't be doing, particularly if we're re- training regularly, is trying to trying to restrict our calories. We, we should be trying to get the most in. Um, and, and to be quite honest, if you, I, I do think that this, there's an element, well, there's a large element of truth in this, is if you are training regularly and you're eating real food, not, mm-hmm. not calorie dense food, but real, real food, unprocessed, avoiding refined sugars. It's actually really difficult to overeat. It's yeah. really difficult if you're training regularly to, to overeat on real food. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's hard. You know, um, if, if all we ate was, you know, pretty basic rice and beans, right. And, and, you know, outside of that, some regular, you know, colorful vegetables and kept it to that, and, and had that fist size piece of protein, if we really just stuck to some pretty simple principles, mm. it is hard. It's hard to overeat. Um, you know, there's been a handful of times when I'm like, you know what, I'm, I am under fueled right now and I, I'm absolutely full. It's happened a handful of times, mostly in Ironman training. I'm like, yep, I'm going to eat that bowl of ice cream and I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about it. I think a lot of people, um, again, they decide based on their diet, you know, how they feel about themselves, you know, and sometimes the diet is, they feel that they have to follow that ketogenic diet because that's what ultra runners do, or they, they follow this certain thing because that's what, you know, people that do a lot of yoga do, um, man, just, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time on this earth and there's a whole lot of really good food out there to eat. Go after it, man. Like I realize I'm, I'm the vegetarian that's saying that and I'm, I'm missing a whole subsection of, of food, but you know what, one of the things I really love doing is I love exploring what people can do with, with vegetables and food. And that's a lot of fun for me. That's, that's, that's where my wife and I, like, we love to check out new vegan and vegetarian restaurants because it, it brings out, makes, it makes broccoli look a whole lot better. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and eating should be fun. I think we've, we've put a connotation against food as athletes that it's, it's our enemy and that, you know, God, if, if I hear another person say, you know, we train so we can eat, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, no, we don't. We like, if you like food and you like to eat, like, I think everybody does then eat, have fun, eat food but don't, don't look at it as this, this gains and loss. Like mm. I ate this many calories, so I must do this much bike ride. It's just, it's ugh, God, that's, that's an awful way to live. Well, if, if you do have that particular approach, um, I would suggest that you need to read burn by Herman Ponser and why we eat too much by Andrew Jenkinson. Both of those, are, uh, give you a much greater insight than most people oh. have into how the metabolism works and what really happens. And you'll soon find that you're on the wrong path. If you're trying to do this, why I call it exercise bulimia, you know, you eat 400 calories yeah. and then you've got to go and ride the walk bike until you burn 400 calories to go to bed, feeling comfortable about yourself. It's, yeah. 
It gives me the willies, man. Cause <laughs> it's like, right. Cause your basal metabolic rates, what 1500 calories per day. So you can, yeah, I was just like, okay, like let's, let's not even get into that. <laughs> but um, yeah, we should, we should stop there before we start ranting and go off on a completely another tangent for an hour. I, I, you know what? I think that's, that's probably smart. I let's, let's stop before we get ahead. I, uh, I really had a lot of fun doing this with you, Simon. I'd love to get back on. I think we could talk a whole lot more about uh, a whole lot of other things. No, it's been great. And I think that our listeners will now have got um, a bit more of an idea if they feel like they want to do an ultra um, run that, you know, the training isn't actually that difficult. Um, it, it, and you've probably got the, you, you've probably got the foundation for it already. If you come from a triathlon background, you need to make some slight alterations, but it's, it's, it's complicated but it doesn't need, well, it's complex, but it doesn't need to be complicated as it's fairly simple. And as we said there with nutrition and life stuff, just have a bit of variety, have fun, do the right yeah. things consistently and you'll get pretty close to your goals. Yeah. It's because- a shift, right? It's a, it's a slight shift one way or the other. You know, if you're a triathlete and you're looking at your first ultra, you you've got the base level fitness, which is the hardest thing to build. you you can, you can work for 12, 15 hours. Uh, it's just about shifting that into, you know, more in one direction. Than, than you are right now when you're splitting them amongst three. So, yeah, Simon, thank you. Andrew, Andrew Simmons, Lifelong Endurance, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, we'll, we'll get you back in the future and we'll dive in deep and have a rant about some other subjects. Let's do it. I look forward to it. Take care. Listeners, thanks as always for being here. We'll be back soon. Take care. Thank you again to Andrew for joining me on this week's High Performance Human podcast. There are links to all of today's discussion points in the show notes below. I really do appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast each week. And you can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And you can also join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now... Please remember that being a high-performance human is a journey, so stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be a little bit better than you were yesterday.